Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, 20th of April, as we record. A month on from the emergency takeover of Credit Suisse, an order has very much been restored. The VIX fear index fell to its lowest level for two and a half years yesterday. We are not resting on our laurels, though. We've got a packed show again today. We're going to be talking about WH Smith's interim results in just a moment. Then we'll examine our cover story this week, which is on bargain investment trusts. And we're also going to be joined by former IC Ideas editor Algie Hall to discuss his new book, Four Ways to Beat the Market. Aside from Algie, today on the show, we have Julian Hoffman. Hi, Julian. Uh, good morning, Dan. Dave Baxter. Welcome, Dave. Hello. Thanks for having me. And Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. We are going to start, as mentioned, with WH Smith's, the high street veteran. Half your figures out today and has... And as has been a common theme of quite a few results this season, not least in retail, these figures are fairly decent, Julian. Yes, I covered the results this morning. Uh, they they actually look really good. I mean, so a lot of the trading profit in their P divisions doubled. Um, but uh, you could put that down to expansion in the US particularly. They seem to be doing very well at uh, getting into US airports. Uh, and it's really a company that's built on that entire model. So Essentially, they rely on opening a shop in a building where nobody can leave and pile it full of books about the SES, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is probably why I have two copies of Bravo 2.0, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, so they're still the only real option. They have this kind of monopoly business uh, where nobody has a choice but to buy their product if they want something to read. Um, and it's a really incongruous... Uh, kind of story, really, because the high street, you imagine the high street side of things would uh, would drag the entire company down, but they seem to be uh, have done a very good job of diversifying away from what is a, a declining core business. And I mean, the core business on the high street in these results is on a kind of gentle uh, 5% decline, you know, slope that you can sort of predict uh, coming through. But yeah, so they, you know, they keep opening stores in key places. The way to understand WH Smith is that it's all about a capital allocation story. So they, they're making their money out of being quite careful about how they do their CapEx spending. I mean, I noticed though in, the, in these results that the, the CapEx balances the depreciation. So the on the face of it, the store estate is not is not declining in any sense, which is a kind of a comes as a surprise if you go into your average W. Smith on the high street. But what that means is that they are investing in these key locations, and that is where the money is coming from, really. Um, so the next time you pay, you know, two pounds forty for a bottle of uh, water, uh, you know that that's going directly towards funding their dividend, which also made an appearance in the, in these results. So yes, I mean, all around it was a very good morning and. Um, it looked like the investors uh, took profits on what has uh, actually been a very good run for the shares. So, yeah, you can't um, you can't argue with that kind of careful husbandry, really. As you say, the you know the the UK the high street real estate you know looks fairly tired, and that's where a lot of us encounter or are used to encountering Smiths. But it is the the travel side, uh, which is seventy percent of group revenue already, I think, and even more of profit. Uh, as I said today. The, the travel side, that captive audience that really boosts figures on a regular basis nowadays, as well as the international expansion. You know, they have North America as a place where they're opening a lot of stores, the US and Canada. Uh, you know, obviously in the UK, they are fairly 
well covered, but that this is, you know, really just dipping their toe in, just starting to expand over there, and that seems to be going quite well. Uh, another uh, retailer going into the US and achieving that level of market share in a comparatively small amount of time. Usually, the US is a notoriously uh, a difficult place to crack for uh, for UK retailers. So it's a commendable performance from Smiths that they got this far. But again, it's all based on on the fact that uh, you know in an airport terminal nobody has any other choice but to buy their product. Well, what about the the valuation? You mentioned some of the good run up the shares have had. Uh, forward PE. I was having a look earlier. It's about nineteen. The the peg ratio is zero point nine, which suggests some value there. You know that is the PE ratio relative to the the prospect of of growth in earnings. How do you how do you see the the balance for Smiths at the moment? Oh, it sounds about right. I mean, it certainly puts the top end for retail, isn't it, in this country? Um, you know, along the side the likes of Next and uh, and in that area. Uh, so it's so comparatively. It, you, you you might be able to buy cheaper, but uh, in terms of the quality of the earnings growth, it's it it, it seems that that uh, that peg ratio is a better guide to to the value prospects for it. Yeah. Um, the the problem I I think they might find is whether you know there is another change in in shopping habits or taste that might ultimately end the the, the reliance we have on uh, on that sort of reading in the. Well, that sort of product in an airport, but uh, it hasn't shown any signs so far that that uh, even with the you know kind of people's e-readers or things like that, that that's going to change very quickly. Mm. I mean, the, yeah, as the the peg ratio would suggest, you know, there there is still you know some pretty good earnings growth factored in by analysts for the years ahead. So you know, there are some high expectations out there uh, based on this international expansion, based on uh, some of the new initiative, perhaps even in the UK. I think you know they are. They've taken advantage of the likes of, you know, paper chase collapsing. I think they've said to, you know, do more in terms of. Oh, there's a definite last man standing mm. syndrome coming in. I mean, uh, what's the other one that went uh, partially bankrupt? It was McColl's, wasn't it? I think that was the other mm. uh, yeah. agency that you could you could sort of find in small towns. And uh, uh, the only one I can find around here is in Sidmouth. It has that defensiveness that comes from being able to outlast almost everyone else in the same space. So that, that adds an attraction to that those earning forecasts, uh, which, you know, there's every possibility they could fulfill them. It, it's a catch-22 for an investor's point of view. I mean, do you, do you want to you know, get involved in a business that has a, a difficult core legacy sort of offering? I don't know. Well, as long as they uh, continue to sell the IC in their high street shops, they should be, uh, their future should be assured, I think. Well, we should also say it's also available in uh, other reputable distributors. Of course, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, last man standing thing reminds me a little of uh, the, the thing we had in another piece this week written by uh, Gemma Slingo, looking at the likes of Next and M&S and how they've started to, to buy up some of the, these companies too. So there is a, a competition benefit perhaps there. Uh, Alex, I don't know if you had some thoughts on W. H. Smith, which has, has maybe won you over a bit in recent years. <laughs> yeah, um I mean the the story is is uh is similar to when I last covered them in 2021 um or one of obviously we've t- touched on it on managed decline in, in the legacy business um I think at that point the strength of the travel uh, recovery story was not yet clear uh, and particularly in in North America where I mean the results they they beat expectations today on that front uh, has been really really strong um and I suppose if you're looking over the last five years at this, it, you know, it was a delayed 
turnaround story in a way or or pivot delayed pivot because they um you know we had we had the pandemic and that shuttered their operations both on the high street and in travel got to give wh smith some credit here because retail is not an easy business to do and they they obviously have a formula that you know perhaps they've learned from the high street experience on how to you know cram as much into as small a space as possible they understand the customer base very well and how you you stack up certain products next to one another to encourage impulse buying or or a kind you know a different kind of basket shop and they've applied that to travel which is a growth market i mean the 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 forecasts for over the next couple of decades for air travel particularly are that it's it's going to expand so footfall there is much more of a, a guaranteed driver of earnings than than their their legacy business i suppose when it comes down to the valuation um it's all about if they can beat estimates and at the moment you've got so earnings forecast for this year about 79p a share that's flatlined pretty much since the end of 2021 it's a similar picture for next year's forecasts and then and, and then investors are, uh, or analysts are really have been sort of revising their, their growth forecasts upwards um for 2025 so there's a bit of can kicking that's gone on here but if you know by the end of this year as management saying that the 85 percent of profits are going to be coming from travel that is a growth industry you can start to leave behind the 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 legacy business in your fact in, in your you know factoring in the sum of the parts valuation for the business and start to focus on what is a is a growth story so um it's definitely it's definitely improved i think as a uh, investment case in the last couple of years um yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the, the the shares are looking um, fairly valued at the moment, but over the next couple of years, they have a they have an opportunity to to beat expectations and um and perhaps re-rate from here. Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is a, another recurring theme we've seen in the short term that travel boom. You know, we've EasyJet this week as well, and EasyJet its share price performance over the last few months tells you all you need to know about that story. Really, you know, the the demand not just in in the US but in Europe as well for holidays, short haul breaks is not going away, whatever the pressures on the consumer in general. Let's turn to our cover story now, though. Dave Baxter, our funds editor, has written a piece on bargain investment trusts, because while I said, as I said at the top of the show, you know, markets are a little bit more serene at the moment, some of the discounts on trusts that are still available, frankly, uh, following on from the banking mini crisis, following on from you know the tougher times, the higher interest rates of the past uh, 18 months, some of the, essentially these discounts have not closed up to the, in the way that some people may have expected. What kind of opportunities are out there at the moment, Dave? And what's the kind of extent of that discount widening that we've seen in recent months? Yeah, so as you as you said, we've kind of um, maybe had a bit bit of a setback for markets with um, the events of March and things have sort of come back. Um, and to kind of quantify it, you know, if you looked at the average investment trust at the turn of the year, the discount would be on thirteen percent. Um, and over the first quarter, that widened out to 16%. So we're again at some kind of really interesting levels. And even though discounts have been quite common over the last year, they are, you know, extremely wide in many cases across many sectors. And you're getting this interesting sort of both gloomy and cheerful comparison with the financial crash. You know, times are very disconcerting. Things look very uncertain. But perhaps this is a window of opportunity that, that might close soon so if you you know if you have the stomach you have the time there are various areas you could get into and that i mean there are so many cases but just to 
give a couple of broad themes, I suppose. There are some of the kind of classic kind of growth investments that we've seen taking a hammering, whether that's kind of tech stocks or um, other kinds of areas. But also, and I guess we'll get into this, there are some things like, you know, kind of inflation plays and some areas that have been really um, popular in recent years have also kind of um, looks cheaper than they were before. You're right, we will come to those inflation plays <laughs> shortly. Uh, in some cases, though, it's fair to say perhaps the discounts, or in, in your view, look, look a bit more warranted. You know, uh, mm. maybe some areas such as private equity and similar growth capital, as the, the yeah. uh, sector is known. Yeah, so growth capital, I guess, to, I mean, people might interpret it differently, but that tends to apply to uh, the kind of trusts that hold mature unlisted companies that um, in some cases you might expect to be sort of on the cusp of an IPO, at least when markets recover again. So one example is the kind of slightly ill-fated Chrysalis Trust. Um, but you have all sorts of other examples like Seraphim Space, which launched um, a year or two ago. It's a great fanfare, went to a big premium that I think today was on something like a 65% discount. Um, but to, yeah, to sort of talk about the doubts, one big doubt here is what is actually priced in. And how realistic is that? Because you've got these kind of um, unlisted companies. Um, people could argue, particularly with things like Chrysalis, that perhaps they were very generously valued at one point. And people worry, in some cases, you know, have they been kind of valued down enough? And you have had write-downs with, with things like Chrysalis, with some kind of Scottish mortgages, unlisted. Um, but people might still think that there's further to go. And it's also worth noting that on the kind of dedicated private equity trusts, which are also on enormous discounts, which look very interesting. There's a kind of a delay on when you get kind of valuation updates. So people feel like, you know, perhaps there's another another shoe to drop. Yeah, it's this, as you say, this lag between, you know, the, the share price and the NAV. The reason in some mm. cases that share prices on such a discount is because, not because, uh, well, is because they expect the NAV to fall closer to the share price in short. Uh, yeah. But uh, I should say, I mean, you know, maybe we're sceptical of private equity. Some people have been talking about that as an area of interest, too, in itself, just because, I mean, they've all traded on discounts for a long time, but those discounts have got even even yeah. bigger now. So there's, you know, there's still some margin for error there. Other areas, you touched on them, inflation-linked plays, where, again, the, this is a different scenario to private equity, completely different in that mm. they, for many years, have been on premiums, but uh, have been in recent weeks, months, for the first time in a long time, trading on some small discounts. The likes of infrastructure trusts here perhaps look quite interesting. Yeah, this is really interesting because I, I feel like if whenever we've kind of written about this sector, it's been very popular because of the resilient income and because it's seemingly not really too linked to what goes on in, in the economy. They have lots of kind of long-dated contracts and that kind of thing. Um, but if we'd written about this any time in the past few years, we'd be talking about kind of quite chunky premiums. Uh, some kind of double digit premiums and you really are kind of putting your faith in these trusts uh, names like Hickel and kind of accepting the fact that you have to pay over the odds uh, what's interesting though is um, those trusts they kind of they sold off pretty heavily um, at the time of the mini budgets um, kind of affected by what was going on with with bond yields and they they did recover to an extent, but um, we just we haven't really seen 
a return to those kind of big premiums. And we actually have some kind of some discounts on names like Hickel, on names like international public partnerships, which are the sort of big stalwarts of the sector that people see as very reliable names. And that's that's quite interesting. And I suppose to turn to some subsectors, you also have the kind of digital infrastructure funds um, are still on some pretty big discounts and some of the kind of energy efficiency trusts if you want to go for that kind of more granular, maybe a bit more risky, but kind of um, more interesting exposure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as you allude to, we are in an environment of higher rates, higher bond yields, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that these trusts automatically are going to be on these discounts forever. Mm. We will conclude by talking about, you know, the most popular trust or certainly the erstwhile most popular trust in the UK, Scottish Mortgage, uh, which is always, you know, hotly debated. Obviously, it's not had a good run uh, in the short term. Over the long term, everyone knows uh, its performance speaks for itself. On a discount of about 15 to 20 percent in recent weeks, you know, again, this is one, you know, this is one that could go either way, perhaps, or it is for me. It's a hard one to to call, but but in the pieces where we do discuss some of the the pros and cons there, and some of uh, the interesting, perhaps, analyst opinion about Scottish mortgage at the moment. This is all aside from the uh, the very public boardroom spat that they had recently. <laughs> Just this, ignoring it pure, purely thing, about yeah. the valuation in this instance. Yeah. So um, analysts at Peel Hunts, uh, I suppose, tried to sort of square the circle and, and you know work out what's going on with the um with sentiment and with the kind of valuations and they made the point that you know there, there is such a cloud hanging over scottish mortgage at the minute and i guess to illustrate that if you think in recent months you've had a big bounce back for lots of kind of growthy trusts names like the technology trusts and scottish mortgage hasn't really taken part in that and that might be because of things like the, the boardroom spat and that kind of thing but in terms of valuation um they tried to work it out by basically they, they applied the kind of average private equity trust discounts of around 40% to the unlisted portfolio. That's something like 30% of Scottish mortgage. And then they applied a 15% discount to the listed assets. And that was based on the average discounts on offer in the technology sector. And sort of working from that, they believe that a blended discount of around 22% is fair value. And as of today, it was around something like 2021. 20, so perhaps you are kind of reaching a point where you're at least at kind of a fair price. Mm. If, again, yeah, you know, I think there's definitely some element of the, the boardroom uh, issues affecting the price in the short mm. term. But at the same time, you know, as you say, tech has done a bit better again recently. And, and you know, that is the bread and butter for Scottish mortgage. So I'm sure it's one that everyone will be keeping a close eye on in the weeks and months ahead. We are going to talk stock screens now. We are joined by our former colleague, Algie Hall, whose new book, Four Ways to Beat the Market, comes out next month. Algie, welcome or welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm very well. I'm all the better for being here. Indeed, it's lovely to have you here in the studio. We did think you were going to be over the line, but you're here in a surprise appearance. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, the book itself, I, I should start by saying uh, I found it a really insightful read, actually. Uh, it's very good at boiling down and explaining how to analyze balance sheets and read company accounts. I mean, we all know reading those accounts can be a difficult job, but in some ways explaining that to someone else can be equally tough, and I think it does a fantastic job at doing that. Oh, thank you. But the core of the book itself is, uh, is about stock screens, sort of moving on from uh, the accounting process to sort of see what you can do with that information. Uh, so can you sort of say a bit about what you wanted to do when in writing this book, what you hoped to have achieved? Yeah, no, sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose... Part of the answer is in, you know, 
what I ended up doing is in what you said, there's so many bits and pieces you have to explain in order to really understand what you're doing with stock screens as an individual. So um, really what, what I wanted to do was um, highlight some of the screens which have been very successful in the Investors Chronicle comment column. Um, but really I want to highlight how readers can actually build their own screens and understand what they're doing. So um, in, in a way you have to go back to first principles. You have to understand the accounts because obviously that's the raw material from which you build screens or create the ratios which kind of power a lot of the screening. But more importantly than that, you have to actually understand why the screen is going to work, what you're trying to achieve. And um, really it comes down to understanding the kind of edge you're um, developing and the strategy you're following. So um, when, when it came to kind of thinking about these screens and thinking about why they worked, fundamental to it was um, to try and get a very good understanding of why certain strategies work. And often it's, I mean, I think mainly it's um, behavioral reasons which um, single out different strategies as being a good way to build an edge and um, beat the market. The part of the book which is at the core, it is the, the four kind of types of screen that are used in the IC regularly still to this day. Uh, maybe we just go through those uh, because another point about screens is they really tell you, you know, they screen for ideas, of course, that's, you know, the clue is in the name, but it's really what they can also then tell you about companies themselves and what they can Im imply or hint at about the underlying workings of different companies. And one way you use that in the book is with each of these four screens is you kind of show an example of times when the screen threw up something that actually turned out to be a great pick over the years to come and times when sometimes it threw up something which nonetheless had some problems that were still uh, you know rather more embedded in the company so it didn't end up being such a big per a great performer so for example the contrarian value screen you talk about on the plus side hill and smith on the downside ted baker could you maybe just talk a little bit about either of those examples and how the screen kind of indicated what was to come for those businesses? Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 with writing the book, one thing I really wanted to point out was the failures. Because often there's a lot of time devoted to, you know, success in investing. But actually, if you can avoid um, the failures, and especially if they're failures which you can see in advance with a bit of work, then that's so valuable to investors. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you lose so much capital, you don't have enough to invest and make it back that's you know absolutely deadly and um a, a lot of the, the the things that ted baker for um it, taking the example that you've just given they were um fairly obvious if you use certain accounting ratios um balance sheet ratios which um i've highlighted in the um in the book as red flag ratios and um with that company there had been a, you know a whole lot of things going on which made it contrarian but um, the issue in the accounts was that the level of stock at the company was rising as a proportion of sales precipitously. And what, what happened after the screen highlighted it, and it was a stock that I wrote up and I, you know, hopefully readers would have, would have clocked on that, I'm, you know, I was saying that there's, you know, the, the, talking about the stock building in the column. But um, what happened afterwards all revolved around the stock. There, there had been a big overstatement of the value of stocks and stock. And stock is, you know, essentially it's cost that's been incurred by a company, but they haven't yet pushed it through the profit and loss account. So if you have a lot of it, then um, all of a sudden, you know, you've looked very profitable in the past, but there's suddenly this big um, 
you know, uh, reckoning. And um, you realize the company was never as profitable as stated because a lot of it was just cost still, you know, remaining on the balance sheet when it shouldn't have. And the business fundamentally, you know, wasn't as good as um, everyone thought. And so in the future, won't generate the kind of returns that people thought it was capable of. So with a contrarian play in particular, where you're looking for a company which has a kind of bounce back ability, as it were, that's, you know, a really important thing to look out for, that, you know, actually what was happening in the past could happen again in the future rather than it having been really, you know, not a genuine uh, performance historically. And quality is another screen you look at, although, as you mentioned in the book as well, in some ways, ultimately, what you want, obviously, from any investment is, is a good quality company. Uh, can you say a bit about sort of the thinking behind that screen and then maybe we bring in Alex as well, the current owner, if you will, of the screens to, to talk a little bit about quality it's, investing it, as well. It's common ownership. It's common. <laughs> the keeper of the screen. Yeah, the keeper, I should say. <laughs> yeah. I passed him the seal when I left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, quality is, I mean, if, if, you, if, you're, if you want to ask the question, what makes a great company? That's really quite a simple answer, which is a company which can uh, make a return on its investments, which is way more than the cost of those investments and can also also has the opportunity to invest at that level of return going forward into the future. And so um, quality is really about, um, you know, quality investing is really about asking what makes a great company. And um, for a screen, the screen can look for the simple answer because there are um, simple metrics you can use to um, test whether a company has the hallmarks of a quality company because they are financial. As, as you were saying, it, it is the company we all want. We all want to find what we actually all want. We want to find the company, which is a quality company, but people aren't recognizing it at the moment. So, um, and sometimes that happens. There's also this opportunity just to buy quality. And um, there's, there has been an issue with um, valuations getting inflated in that part of the market. I mean, less so now because we've had a kind of, you know, a bit of a derating of quality plays. In general, the, um, the way I explain the success of quality in the book fundamentally comes down to the fact that we tend to think in straight lines. We, don't, we kind of think of growth as a straight line affair. So, you know, you're getting that much extra this year and the same amount extra next year. Whereas, um, as, as we kind of all have been educated to know, but we find it very hard to kind of actually, growth is actually a kind of upward sloping curve when it happens through compounding. And that's what makes people fantastically, you know, wealthy. And it's, a, you know, it's the story essentially behind all the great, you know, growth stories we have like uh, Costco or Amazon, all those type of companies. They, they grow at the same, you know, a similar rate or an increasing rate um, every year, an making an amazing return on those investments that they plow back into their companies and they create ridiculous amounts of value for their shareholders. And... Um, I, I, also, I mean, one, one other thing that hopefully I make clear in that part of the book is that um, uh, quality investing is very different to, or quality growth investing is very different to just growth investing because growth um, can destroy value if you're paying over the odds. Your, your investment costs more than uh, the return you're going to make on your investment. So I think that's also a trap that lots of people fall into. Um, lots of private investors can fall into. They see... Um, a company growing very fast without asking what's the cost that they're paying for that growth. And if the cost is ahead of the return, then value is being destroyed. 
Alex, your take on a quality company? Because, again, this is a screen that's, like some of the screens, they have moved with the times a little bit over the years as well. That, you know, some tests have been altered somewhat, which you, you need to do, I think, because market definitions change. But, Alex, how do you sort of see the, the quality side of things? Yeah, I mean, for me, quality, I suppose, um, if there's a pecking order to the different the, the different factors that that uh, you pick out in the in in the book and I suppose across the screens, I mean value is the one that you can you can have the you know arguably the biggest debate over. Quality kind of shows itself, but still I suppose having taken over the screens in what's been a really difficult period, you know it's it's, it's been hard to untangle from I suppose the fundamentals of the quality businesses. Has something gone wrong with? With the businesses over the last um, the last year or so, or is it was it all down to their, their kind of like juicy evaluation? So that's been something that I've I've struggled to sort of pick apart a little bit over the last year. I mean, you know, every every stock is a different case, and you can boil it down to the individual stock. But I suppose as a uh, as as a sort of theme, quality is one um, which uh, which has been it's been interesting to write about over the last year, but um, hard. I mean, one one I did want to ask you about was momentum which you you sort of look at in the great expectations screen i mean one one feature of the the screens we've not talked about is that you know they're kind of structured as annually revised phenomenon which is you know it's it's kind of like an arbitrary rule almost you know you could run this you could run the screens indefinitely you know and and do very well and you pick out some of the companies which had you just stayed with them you know had you just stayed with games workshop after 2017 you know it would have been happy days sort of thing but um Momentum, I find really interesting because it seems so powerful in the way it works over certain periods, but identifying, you know, what is the strongest use of a period, you know, is is the real hard question here. Is it a year? Is it a quarter? What's kind of your take on having surveyed this for a decade plus? Well, it's a very good question and so good I don't have an answer uh, (laughs) for people listening. The reason why the screens are annually is because we're journalists and we you know we have we have to, we we rotate them we keep yeah we want we want them to you know fresh fresh ideas for our readers um but um and and obviously yeah if you find a great yeah. great company you you try you and hold on to, to it. it but um i think with momentum there's one massive danger with it which is the whipsaws cuz um if if you get a change in a big change in sentiment in um you've got a stock which is really firmly attached to that sentiment. So, you know, the, the end of the um, uh, the post-pandemic boom, uh, end of 2021, that's a classic example for me, um, which, I, which I highlight in the book, where um, just stocks just blew up, which kind of, you know, which were totally um, built up around the idea that everything would continue to be as it was in terms of their trading, and also they were massively overvalued and overhyped. So, I mean... You know, with with a with a stock like that, you just have to be you know careful about going close to it. I mean, if if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt, kind of thing. But I I think um yeah, momentum's kind of agnostic in terms of style, and I'd say probably um, people who are trying to use it to identify interesting situations need to be a bit agnostic in terms of thinking about you know the time frame, the situation it's leading them into, because if you've um kind of got a um, a company which is maybe going through a recovery, becoming something different, becoming very hot because of that. Actually, those kind of stories can have, you know, ages to run. I think one, one of the stocks we, which is highlighted in uh, the book is um, JD Sports, 
which um, a different screen actually caught a, a, in a very similar phase in its development, the dividend screen. And it was um, really not looking very special, but it was being turned around and the, um, the virtues of its business model was starting to come to the fore. And um, that, I mean, I, I think that was captured also by the momentum screen later on. And that's just like, you know, it's a really good business case. And the reason why it's exceptionally hot in, you know, over a certain time period is because it's just becoming apparent. And those kind of stories don't necessarily die down, you know, when they're associated with those long-term compounding of returns. But then something else, um, more cyclical, you're looking for the end of the cycle and you're looking for a build-up in... Um, you know, supply, competition coming on, all those, you know, the classic signs that you're late in a cycle and the returns are going to wane. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, if it, you know, if it's just speculative, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, think often with those stocks, why go there? It's you don't, you know, investors don't need to. You mentioned dividend investing there, and that is kind of the fourth section as well as momentum, contrarian value, quality, the, the dividend investing, which you distinguish from income investing in that quite often from a private investor's point of view these are it's the high yield low risk screen and it's quite interesting because these are the kind of stocks that for professional fund managers it can be difficult to hold because they're dull but reliable I think you call them uh, which means you know they can underperform in a bull market so there's a career risk element there but nonetheless these are the kind of stocks that over time can compound really well and also the point you make is that these kind of stocks that they pay dividends the way that you kind of consider dividends as a benefit is not so much the payout itself, but, you know, what that says about the company and what that says about the reliability yeah. of the company. I mean, I, I, I think, I think um, dividends in, in the UK, we have a very odd relationship with dividends, which I think is, um, you know, around the marketing of income funds and things like that. It's like very hard to understand if you actually pull it apart and think about it logically. So, I mean, I think it's really important for investors to realise that, um, you know, receiving dividends is, is a zero-sum game. It's like, you know, if, when, when your stock goes ex-dividend, it falls by the amount of the dividend that's been paid out. And for management, it's simply a capital allocation decision. It's that, you know, it, the management's job is as capital allocators, and they have a certain amount of cash at the end of the year. And um, they say, OK, some of it, you know, we need to spend on maintenance and, you know, whatever. Then we think about investing in um, growing this business. So if they're, you know, good investment opportunities, you know, returns, you know, expected to be over the cost of capital, then, you know, let's go for it. But everything else is, you know, well, we better just give it back. We don't, you know, they could pay down debt, obviously, make acquisitions, etc. But um, essentially, the dividend is, you know, just the leftover bit. And it's really, you know, it's the capital allocation of the last resort in a way. It's kind of, you know, back to you, shareholder, do what you will with it. So um, it's not the sign of, um, you know, good things. It's actually the sign that, you know, this is a slightly mature business with a limited opportunity set. However, what's really interesting is that it tells us something about um, the capital allocation of your average management team. The fact that this type of stock is, you know, all, all, all the strategies, I should say, you know, there's a really rich um, academic history um, and, you know, in, you know, testing by um, the finance industry, which, you know, shows that it's not just, you know, the screen performances, which I talk about over 10 years as, you know, these, these are things which actually do have solid foundations. But so the fact that stocks which have less volatile shares is the other important ingredient and pay out um, steady dividends. 
the fact they underperform tells us that the average management team probably tends to allocate capital badly and um, kind of, you know, they spend money on wastefully on projects which don't produce the kind of returns that investors should um, expect. So when you have these conservative management teams, and it's often associated with um, families with high family own, uh, levels, uh, sorry, companies with high levels of family ownership, which, you know, credited with having more multi-generational thinking, they, they, they outperform due to conservatism because they're just, you know, they're keeping a strong balance sheet, not doing anything too jazzy, just, you know, looking at, you know, what matters to kind of, like, you know, make sure things tied over and the money keeps rolling in. They're really interesting from that uh, regard. But um, the income is just, I mean, you know, the, uh, I, I, you know, the, the income, I, psychologically, probably for some investors, it's really helpful just to have that dividend check land in the bank rather than having to, you know, make the decision to, okay, I want this much income, so I'm going to, you know, sell this much of my, of, of my holding of whatever. But, I mean, you know, if, if you look at it rationally, there's, you know, there's, there's no difference. It's like, you know, you don't, you know, you don't need um, someone paying you dividends to create an income stream, and it's actually far more efficient, um, you know, to have it just ploughed back in by the company itself. We're running out of time, unfortunately, but Alex, I know there's another thing you wanted to, to pick up, which is just on the, the idea of factors, you know, factors behind all these screens, essentially, be they quality, uh, dividend, what have you, about them being arbitraged away over time. Uh, you know, some research t to this end. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, you know, it, it's often in, you know, it completely depends on how you measure measure it. And I think that this research that I, I'd, um, I, I, I sh was show, showing you the other day that I'd saw from Man Group, there was an analyst suggesting that, you know, the factor premiums that you might have, uh, you might have seen uh, a generation ago or 15 years ago uh, uh, showing a bit of decay i.e. that if there's any kind of there's any edge to be had through factors we've got so many people jumping on so many investors jumping on those uh, edges that they kind of they they disappear or arbitraged away is that i mean i'd say lo logically i wouldn't you think that has to make sense probably mm. i mean um i i i, I, th I think um you know i, I kind of think that in terms of factors uh you know they they're interesting because they tell us something uh, kind of happens in terms of, you know, the, what, what, why they're interesting to me, at least, is they tell, tell, you know, they say certain things are kind of like missed by the market. And this is, you know, it, it's kind of like there's something deeply ingrained in us as investors, which means we overlook certain situations. And so I think that's the way they really point to, you know, there's an edge here, probably. Or, you know, we, we, we can, you know, we should think there's an edge here. Um, and I, I suppose in terms of taking those factors and converting them into stock screens, I mean, the screens which, um, you know, I did and you do are kind of far more specific. They're not kind of um, just saying, I, yeah, you know, give, you know, give me all the, you know, low, low vol stocks. They're saying, I want low vol, I want a dividend track record, I want a yield which looks interesting. And you get a far more bespoke, if you like, um, <laughs> select and smaller selection of stocks, which then, uh, you know, there, there'll be some really, you know, normally, you know, touch wood. Uh, there's, you know, there are some good ideas in there. And, there's, you know, in, in, um, I mean, I think, you know, the thing, the thing for the private investor, any investor, is to, you know, roll up their sleeves and um, then really understand where, where the good ideas are. 
But, um, you know, in doing that, the, the value of having a screen and having um, a really clear strategy behind what you're doing is that you can really focus in on something that works and you can stay consistent, which um, is a really important thing for kind of building what people call a behavioral advantage, because it kind of, you know, it kind of means you're acting in a way which is more rational than other investors and more consistent. And that's really what I think is the biggest win for most private investors. That's what private investors can go for because the other type of um, advantages which um, allow for outperformance, they are really the preserve of big, well-financed institutions. Um, but the behavioral advantage is probably actually the biggest advantage you can have by um, yeah, you know, using your common sense, but just having something, a process which will allow you to stick to your guns and not be panic to do something stupid or be seduced by um, something which does that takes you outside your comfort zone yeah that and a five megabyte spreadsheet that crashes <laughs> every, time, uh, every time i try to open it i do I, I think i've probably left you with some spreadsheets which are a bit bigger than they needed to be the excel data behind these sheets here is quite quite weighty hey computer power will only grow <laughs> indeed <laughs> on that note Unfortunately, we have come to the end of the show, but Algie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone today, to Alex, to Julian, and to Dave. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.